The reading of God's word, our text this morning is from John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, and said to him, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? And Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And this is the word of the Lord. Well, now, we're jumping into the middle of John's opening chapter. And as you know, each and would expect, each of the four evangelists are very intent on making careful use of how they introduce the person and work of Jesus, the Lord and the Savior of men and women. Well, the first 34 verses compose what is known as John's Christological prologue, where John the Evangelist and John the Baptist say tremendous things about who this Jesus is that's coming into the world. And, and it has been marveled at by scholars and Christians down through the centuries as the, the greatest Christological Advent discourse imaginable. He is called the Word of God, who was with God at creation. He's called the light and the life of men is coming into the world. 
John the Baptist said, Behold, it's the Lamb of God that is coming into the world that takes away the sin of the world. If you were to look at that tremendous prologue of John, you will notice that it has all been about God, about, about who he is, about what he was thinking about sending Jesus, about what his actions are in sending the Son of God. But you will also notice something pretty interesting, that the narrative all through those 34 verses has yet to show or tell us much of anything about how this Jesus actually comes to and encounters uh, men and women and how they encounter him. And this is where we are jumping in. So put your antenna up, please, when you think of this narrative. Because what goes on in this narrative shows what God does in and with anyone who comes to know him as Lord and Savior. It shows us how Jesus draws a person like you and like me to himself and makes them his disciple. This narrative is not given to us just for data information about what happened, but the narrative is given to us as a pattern to show how Jesus, who this one that came into the world, actually makes contact with people like us and draws us to himself. Now, the dynamic action that goes on in this narrative naturally evolves around uh, three things. I asked John if I had the sermon notes and ready in time to put it in the bulletin. And he said, oh, we usually don't do that. He said, our people get it. I said, oh. <laughs> well, uh, I'm going to check with you afterwards, and I'll check with you, and, uh, and we'll see about that. But here, here are the movements. A question, an invitation, a promise. And then along the way and at the end, number four is... How shall we then live? Now, if you will allow me to make personal reference, uh, as a young man in the 60s, I was overseas in the military, and I was not yet a professing Christian. And my mother sent me a Bible. And I read that Bible pretty serious for almost four years. And it was one of those Bibles that was the red-letter New Testament. And in it, they would put in the New Testament the actual words that came out of the mouth of Jesus. And, and, uh, and, and I, I remember that, how God especially used the Gospel of John as one of those letters that really drew me to himself and maybe one of his disciples. Now, do any of you here have one of those red-letter New Testaments? Now, I, I did ask John for backup, because they don't, I don't see those too often anymore. So, well, John, would you tell us, what are the first red letters in John's gospel? Ah, did you hear that? What are you seeking? In a lot of your translations, it will be, what do you want? The first words out of the mouth of Jesus. That is striking. The next day, when those two disciples, which were Andrew and John, John the Baptist, started following Jesus, he, he saw them following, and he turned, 
And the first words out of this, the mouth of the Son of God in John's Gospel are, he said, what do you want? It's very striking. This is, this is a question. No, no, no. No takers. This is the question. Not just a question, but it is the question. Remember, John closes his gospel by saying, you know, if we wrote down everything that Jesus said and did and everything, he said, I don't suppose the world could hold the books. And then he also said at the end of his letter, he said, but I have written down these things under inspiration by the Holy Spirit. These are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have, find and have life in his name. Now, I got limited press that God's given me, 21 chapters to write down this gospel. So under inspiration, I have to be selective of what I write. I have to write what is absolutely germane. And what I am writing down is the first thing that came out of Jesus' mouth that struck us was he turned and looked and he said, what do you want? This is big. You, you, see, you see, it is this pattern that we have to pay attention to. You see what Jesus is doing here? Jesus is looking into these men, and he wants them to look into themselves. This is very strong. And I do remember to this day how that question did first hit me like a brick. Later, I learned from Bible scholars that that was precisely the intent of the Holy Spirit. And it was John's intent. Remember, John was one of the two guys standing right there in front of Jesus. And John says, wow, this, this really, boom, this, I remember how this hit me. What do you want? Ray Stedman, who was a pastor and a Johannine scholar, he's dead now. He's a good man. I didn't know him personally, but I knew communications and reading things. He said this about this passage. He said, these are profound, remarkable words, these first red-letter words. They are most likely the very first words that Jesus uttered in public ministry. And I have always been fascinated by these words, he said, in his long life of study and pastoral work. I have always been fascinated by them as they go right to the heart of every human life. You see, friends, don't you know, and I think you do, this inquiry, it probes the inner soul of a person, the center of operations of who you are, the command center, because you do know that a person consciously and subconsciously always gravitates to what they want, always gravitates to what they're seeking, whether they realize it or not, deep within themselves what they want. Want being used not in the superficial sense, but this word means a searching, a seeking, what they desire deep down in themselves. Now, your behavioral science students and professors will vouchsafe for this, that underneath everything else, we are primarily creatures driven by desire. 
Jesus doesn't turn around and say, well, what are you guys thinking? No, he says, what do you want? And he looks deep within them. Augustine is profound on this point. Such is each one as is his love, he said. You are what you want. You are what you love. You are what you seek after, consciously and subconsciously. I mean, what you want, you find a way to go for it. See, okay, guy wants to meet girl. Well, listen, he may be shy. He may think she might not want anything to do it, but let me tell you something. He's going to find a way to make contact with that girl <laughs> through a friend, through this, through that. If he wants to meet her or make contact, he, he, will, he will do it. Jesus turns and he probes and he touches them deep within themselves. The question, the question, what do you really want? What are you seeking? Okay. Oh, they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Now, scholars would tell you that's the discipleship kind of, like that's signing up for a major at, at, uh, at the university. That's signing up to be an apprentice somewhere. Uh, it's, it's the words of discipleship. They say, Rabbi, you're, we see, we're looking to you as a teacher, okay? We want you to answer the question, like, what's it all mean, Alfie? That's in the 60s, if you all know that. that listen, that wasn't just a funny song in a movie. That was a dead serious question. What's it all mean, Alfie? I knew that question, and I didn't have the answer at the time. Well, okay, in other words, what they're saying is, we really want to know who you are. Because we're looking for something. Remember, these guys were lookers. They were searchers for the big questions, the real ones. And we want to know who you really are. And here's the second movement. And Jesus turns to them. He said, in all the faces, circumstances of your wants, he says, come and see. Come and see who I really am. Listen, dear friends, it's an invitation, number two. An invitation. Come and you will see. And they did. So one of the two who heard John speak and follow Jesus was Andrew Simon. Was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He went and found his brother Simon and said to him, 41, verse 41, we have found the Messiah. And he brought him to Jesus. Now we'll return to Peter in a, few, in a couple of minutes. But the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, he said, follow me. Come and see. Follow me. And, 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 and do you see what he's doing here? J Jesus is opening himself up to you, and he's opening himself up to these men. He says, come and look. I want you to know all about me. I want you to know who I am. You know, and it's funny, of course, that they say, hey, come, we have found the Messiah. Oh, yeah, right. It's, it's almost funny, you know. It's kind of a chuckle. Say, no, Jesus found them, and then they found him. But he wants you, he insists, please, as you would want someone to be that way with you, at least maybe. But he wants you to deal with the real him. Not the one that we are so accustomed to framing in our minds that is so influenced by cultural ideas about how, how we like to think about God, you know, how we like to think about Jesus. 
Today's spirituality is, you know, you don't question, just put together some intuitions about reality, about God, about who you are, and, you know, sort of go with that and see how it works. And Jesus, Jesus will have none of that. He said, he said, no, he said, I want you to know who I really am. He opens himself to you. I have a friend who's one of the probably highest IQ guys that I've ever known, and I've known a lot of them, and he's a very bright guy. He's usually 20 steps ahead of everybody, and they don't even know where they're going yet, but he knows. But he says this, he said, so many people, he said, it grieved his soul and his mind. He said, they follow and they believe in what he calls an empty container Jesus. Empty container Jesus. Jesus comes and you fill him with your ideas and cultural ideas. Oh, that's Jesus, man. Everybody loves Jesus. Yeah, we love Jesus. And uh, he said, but no, Jesus will have none of it. He says, no, I want you to come and deal with the real me. Listen, dear friends, you have to think about how Jesus presents himself and what life with him would look like. And you have to allow him to do it before you make your assessment of him, just like you would another person. And, and the corollary thing, you'd be well advised in this process to really learning who Jesus is, to do it with others. On the one hand, having a, a Christian friend is a great gift and assistance to you to really making your way to Christ and, and following him. And on the other hand, some of you who, who do know the real Jesus, you need to take initiative to help others, you know, know the real one. But what an invitation. Come and see. Follow me. He opens himself. So the question, what are you seeking? What do you want? An invitation. Come and see. Follow me. It is like passages uh, like this are the passages that informed Calvin when he opens his institutes of the Christian uh, religion with his famous insightful overarching uh, comment and he says nearly all wisdom that we possess that is to say true and sound wisdom consists of two parts the knowledge of God and the knowledge of ourselves it, that is that is something, okay? What do you want? Come and see the knowledge of, your, of God and the knowledge of yourself. And thirdly, we have, uh, we pick up on Peter. Remember, Andrew, Peter went and got brother Simon and brought him to Jesus in verse 42. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which when translated is Peter. Peter approaches, Jesus already knows Peter's name. And, and that certainly shocked me. <laughs> he already knows me, you know, like, like it uh, does Nathaniel. But it must have shocked Peter even more when he said, I'm changing your name. Your what? And as you know, names were identity uh, factors in <clears throat> the ancient uh, world, much more so than they are today. But uh, Peter, Peter says, whoa, he is, he is this, this man that I'm coming to learn about, he claims that he's going to give me a new identity, a new, a new name. This is, this is a promise. The people that come to Jesus and hook up with him, he gives you a new identity. 
an identity that supersedes all other identity factors that there might be about you trying to tell you who you are. You know, when, when you come to Jesus, if your, name is, if your name is John, he will call you Christian John. It's very profound. Uh, there, is, uh, there is a great, uh, great comment here by William Hendrickson. He says, Jesus here predicts what his divine grace will accomplish in the heart of this disciple, a new name. Well, Philip went then and found Nathaniel in verse 47. And uh, as Nathanael was coming toward him, he said, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no guile. And Nathanael asked who? He says, Well, how do you know me? And Jesus said, Before Philip called you when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And wow, he goes, Nathanael says, Rabbi, you are the Son of God, the King of Israel. Uh, Nathanael is the first one that makes the great confession of faith in the, in the scriptures about who Jesus is. And then Jesus turns to him and he said, Nathaniel, oh, by the way, the pronoun there in your text changes to the plural. And when he says, he turns to, to him and to the, all disciples and he said, to you all, truly, truly, in the Greek it's that Aramaic statement, amen, 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 amen. It's an emphatic thing. Say, put this in caps. Put, put the, write this on the wall so that you can see it. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened if you follow me. And you will see the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. And of course, it's an allusion, of course, to, to uh, Jacob. And, uh, and, and in Genesis chapter 28, where, uh, where Jacob has his dream at Bethel, you know, and he sees the great staircase, and, uh, and the angels are, are ascending and descending. And, and what that means to, to Jacob, and what it means to everybody who knows the story, is that right where Jacob was there, was, there was communication, friendly, good communication between heaven and Jacob on the spot where he laid, on the circumstances of his life, on who he was, what his past was, what his future was, and now there's this, this good communion between him and heaven, and, and, he's, and he's asleep dreaming this. And it's all the work of God. And Jesus said, you will see all of that happen on me, the Son of Man. Wow, this is who he is. Jesus sees you, and he knows you, and he tells you, yet this is what you will see. Boy, this is strong. You remember in John 12, there were some Greeks that came up and wanted to see Jesus. Well, they went to Philip, because uh, Philip was a Greek. Philip and Andrew were the only two Greeks uh, in the discipleship there. But, uh, but they go, and they go to Philip and said, we, sir, we would like to see Jesus. You remember this, come and see? <laughs> we would like to see Jesus. And uh, Philip must have said, well, come and see, you know. <laughs> see, Philip went to Jesus and told him what they wanted. And Jesus responds, they want to see me? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. In other words, friends, these Greeks, these uh, searchers, 
they have come at a good time to see Jesus because this is, this is his last turning into the week of his passion and his crucifixion. For they, along with the disciples, will now see me, Jesus is saying, revealed in the glory of my cross. You will see heaven open like never before. There was even a voice from heaven, you remember, that thundered when he, when he said this, that said, I will glorify it. I, I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. And Jesus said, this voice from heaven was not for my benefit. It was for yours. And when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. You will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So come and see me. Well, they saw heaven open, dear friends. They saw a cross, shed blood, resurrection, risen Jesus, befriending them, <laughs> ascension, Pentecost. And they have now lived long lives with him and written their record of what really counts. And Peter, one of them, said, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous to bring you to God. We have seen heaven open on the Son of Man. This never-to-be-forgotten week at the beginning of Jesus' ministry with these five real men ends now with them staying with Jesus and finding in him a new foundation for their very lives and their destiny. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. What a pattern. What a pattern to show us how, how Jesus makes a person like you and me a disciple of his. A question, what do you want? An invitation, come and see, follow me. And a promise, you will have a new name and you will see heaven opened. Well, how then shall you live? So, okay. How are we supposed to live now? Well, I believe the scriptures, throughout scriptures, teach, as do the faithful teachers and preachers of it down through the centuries, especially including Augustine and Luther and Calvin and countless others, would answer your question this way. How should we now live? Here is the answer. The way you want to. That's their answer. Live the way you want to. Now, in Christian theology, especially Reformed theology, there is this doctrine we call provenient grace, which briefly stated means this, that before a man or woman can seek God, God must first have sought the man or the woman, because provenient means this, preceding in time and order. Provenient grace means preceding in time and order of anything that you or I do to come to Jesus and follow him is uh, done by his initiative and his action. If a, it, it, it is that God, God is searching for man. It's not man's search for God that ever accomplishes salvation. But uh, that will end up in some dark paths. But when God searches for man and finds a man or a woman with provenient grace and touches their life, then they can come alive 
So it must be God's initiative with you. And, but remember, John says in another place, he says, we love because he first loved us. In Luke in 19 says, Jesus came to seek and to save what was lost. Provenient grace. He came to seek you. Okay? In Romans 10, Paul is preaching the gospel to get people to come to know God, and he wants to see people saved, especially his fellow Israelites. And he quotes from Isaiah 65, and it says this. God is speaking. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. <laughs> I was found by those who did not seek me. The nation, to a nation that did not call on my name, I said, here am I, here am I. Here's a picture of it. All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people who walk in ways not good, pursuing their own imaginations. <laughs> That's provenient grace, okay? Now, Listen, here, if you're not a Christian yet, I said at the beginning, this is a very helpful passage if you are not yet a Christian. I think I said that. But, but Jesus, Jesus wants you. He seeks you. He desires you like he did John and Andrew and Peter and Philip and Nathaniel. And he has been calling you, knocking on your door bidding you turn to him as the way, the truth, and the life. All your life long, he's been doing that. He, 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 he just says, and believe me, I can bear witness to that the first 21 years of my life. The calling of God to me, knocking on my door in a thousand different ways. I have an old black pastor, well, he's dead now, but when he was about, he was older than I am now when I was a young pastor in St. Louis and we rented a church planting deal, an AM, African Methodist Episcopal building, and Pastor Stith was, was a classic old white-haired pastor with that old gravelly voice and a godly man. I, I loved him dearly. And, uh, and we would pray for one of his sons in his 50s who was drifting away from God and walking away from the Lord and we would pray that the Lord would somehow call him back. Do whatever is necessary, God. And, all the, and Pastor Stith looked at I was a prison chaplain at the time also. But Pastor Stith looked at me one time and he said, well, Reverend, and he, he, he always called pastors Reverend. He said, Reverend, he said, I know this from my study and my pastoral life. The good Lord, you know, he know how to whisper to a man in the midnight hour and he knew how to blow the door off the hinges. And I said, I know that too. And he's done both to me many times. And the whisper in the midnight hour is often the more powerful one. But if you're not a Christian, I want to tell you, he's been looking for you. And you need to hear his call. So the question now is not whether or not he's been looking to you, but the question is, he turns around, as it were, to you, and he looks into you, and he asks you, what do you want? Now, he's asking you that today. What do you want? And do you think you find it in me? It's reasonable, is it not, for us to say, look, us Christians, we're not trying to browbeat 
a non-Christian in anything. That would be the worst thing we could ever do. The only thing we are trying to do is help you and work with you, saying, come and see who he really is, okay? Come and see who he really is. And at the end of that day, then you just do what you want to do. Okay? Now, if you say he's not your savior, please, please listen to me. Be sure you're rejecting the real Jesus and not the empty container one that we've made up, okay? He knows what he's getting when he gets you too. I thought, I can't come to Jesus, boy, if <laughs> too much baggage, you know, too much this, too much that. He knows what he's getting when he gets you and he wants you. He still calls you. This is true for everyone, okay? Today, you can join these five in our text and countless others down through the centuries, and you can openly confess and deepen your heart that you welcome him as your Lord and Savior. You go to him. Now, for we who confess that we have found Jesus as Lord and Savior, we too believe in provenient gra uh, grace, okay? We remember that Jesus wants and seeks and desires and loves us all our worship, just like he did Andrew, Peter, Philip, and Nathaniel. But mark this, because this is something we are so prone, even in our th theological circles, to neglect. Jesus, who does, seeks and desires you, turns every man or woman who welcomes him into a passionate seeker after God in return. This is the part that we forget. Jesus, the, in Luke 19.10, Jesus came to seek, to want, to desire the lost. It, that, and that desire, that seeking, governed everything he did. That is the same word that is used in verse 38 when he turns and says, what do you want? So, so he said, are you seeking me with the same passion, the same determination as I'm seeking you? Because if you come to me, he says, I, he turns every man or woman who welcomes him into a passionate seeker after God in return. Now, he wants us to know that. And he wants us to experience that. He wants us to be that kind of a person because he knows this. And this alone is the wellspring from which, and please listen to me now, from which you will be enabled to face every circumstance in your life. It, it is the wellspring. It is the place where it will all be determined. It, it is underneath everything else. What is it that you want? And he wants you to want him, and he wants you to know that and feel it. And he wants you to go to that desire. He wants you to be a passionate seeker after himself. Again, countless testimonies will tell you that. Countless ones. This is the motion of love, is it not? In all of its pure forms and expressions. It's reflected in the, in the love relationship between a man and his dog, between a woman and her cat. The dog can't wait for you. The dog wants to see you. Believe me, they do. And, then, and, and, and you want the dog to want you. 
It, it, it is, that's how love works, is it not? True love? That, that's what's true in, in courtship. I, I, want, I want her to, to hope I come. I want him to ho hope I come too. It's that way in friendship. You want each other. It's that way in a good marriage love. It's that way between a parent and a child. But nowhere is it more central and crucial than in God's desire for you and the desire he plants in you for him and his kingdom. It is the key to knowing how to live with him and being enabled to do it. See, it, do you want to go away also? He asked these disciples in John chapter 6. When a lot of disciples said, man, his teaching is too much for me, and they start going away. He said, do you want to go away too? Like, what do you want? And Peter says, well, no, Lord. No, I mean, where, where else would we go? We don't want to go away because you have the words of eternal life. To who else could we go? The scriptures talk about this constantly. Listen, you know these Psalms, 73. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. That is, be, that is in place of you. It is good for me. It is good for me. Right in the middle of the agony that Asaph was, going, Asaph was going through, it is good for me to be near you, God. Is this guy just writing poems? Or is he living life and knows about what it means? Psalm 42, as the deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you. Oh God, my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Oh God, you are my God, Psalm 63. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. Do you see what these people are saying? They are saying what we're talking about. We, we want God first, foremost, and at the center of what I am facing now. It is of the most immediate and, and strengthening help that you can find. So what do they do? This is a memory verse for you, please. Psalm 63, 8 in the old King James and the ASV. My soul then, he says, my soul followeth hard after thee, for thy right hand upholdeth me. Uh, that's what he wants. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, one of my all-time favorites. He says this about this psalm. The longing of these verses is not the groping of a stranger, but the eagerness of a friend, almost of a lover, to be in touch with the one he or she holds dear. It's the same word that's used when Naomi, uh, clung, when Ruth uh, clung on to Naomi. And, and wherever Naomi was going to go, you know, Ruth said, I'm holding on to her. Wherever she goes, I go. I, my soul followeth hard after her. And this is what God is trying to, to create in you. And the, and the main point of this sermon, dear friends, is to deliberately encourage this mighty thirsting and longing and following hard after God in your life and in my life. It, 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 is, it is crucial because we go to what we desire always. It determines our behavior. I wish you could read Jonathan Edwards, The Religious Affections. What a, 
What an insightful person he was. Such as each one, as is his love, Augustine. And how failure is this. When I face things in life, you know what I do? I'm so used to saying, I stop a quarter of the way down, and boom, I respond. I say, oh, well, this is what this situation is about, and this is how I respond. Or I stop half of the way down. Or I, or I go three quarters of the way down, and Jesus, no, no, you must go all the way down. You must follow hard after God, like a deer that's dying of thirst that wants water. And from there alone will you know how to live. From there alone will you be enabled to live. You will live the way you want to. That's true in the battle that we face for life. It's true in the times of discouragement, whatever it is. I know about Romans 7. I, I want to do the right things, but then I don't do them. I do what I don't want to do, and on and on and on. Yeah, Paul said, this is what the battle feels like and looks like when I'm a half of the way down. But he's also the one who wrote Philippians 3. I have one thing that surpasses everything. I want to know Christ. And I am going to forget everything else and count them. I am pressing on to take hold of that for which Christ took hold. Do you see the wisdom of, of God's gospel? Of what he does when he plants his spirit in your heart and reorders all of your loves and devotions and puts himself at the middle. Matthew Henry says in the battle, the joy of the Lord will arm us against the assaults of our spiritual enemies and put our mouths out of taste for those supposed pleasures with which the tempter baits his hook. <laughs> That's good. These things are testable, friends. They're testable wherever you go. When you're in a time of temptation, don't stop a quarter of the way down a half or three go all the way down and what do you want because wherever you stop you're going to do what you really want to do okay and when you're discouraged when you think it's all hopeless and everything come and see well okay the Lord is my shepherd I shall really not be in want and then you will know how to live. I have a, I have a longtime friend who saw on a Sunday morning once uh, some time ago and, you know, I said, well, how are you doing? Well, he says, I'm doing okay, I guess. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, I had a pretty upsetting thing happen uh, last night, Saturday night. But on the one hand, I think it also might have been a very wonderful thing. So I said, once again, what do you mean? Well, my friend had a son who had just graduated recently from high school, and some friends had asked him to come to a party on that Saturday night. Well, Dad sort of knew some of these guys, you know, and he said to his son, he said, you sure you want to go? Well, he did, and he went. And Saturday night was getting late, and uh, finally the phone rang, and there was someone on the other end of the line was mumbling something. And my, my friend said, pardon me, he said, I can't hear you very well. And they started mumbling and saying something else on the other end, and it was obvious that the person on the other end was uh, drunk, okay? And then Dad said, who is this? The person on the other end with slurred speech said, Dad, 
this is your son, uh, Eric. No, 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 Dad, it's not Eric. It's not me. Dad, he says, I got, I got, I don't know who I am. I got drunk. I can't drive home. Can you come and get me? And my friend said, man, that was discouraging in a way. But was it wonderful? Did my son finally see, like, Go down, who am I? <laughs> I'm Eric, so no, 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 it's really not me, Dad. He says, like, who am I? I never forgot that. I never forgot how beautiful that situation is. I want to read you something from Clement of Alexandria, and we will close. This is from the Antonicene Fathers, a man who lived and pastored by 150 to 215. What an what a insight of wisdom. Above all, he told his churches, Christians are not allowed with violence to, to uh, correct the delinquencies of sins, for it is not those that abstain from wickedness from compulsion, but those that abstain from choice that God crowns. It is impossible for a person to be steadily good except by his own choice. For that which is made good by the compulsion of another is not truly good. For he is not what he is by his own choice. For it is the freedom of each one that makes true goodness and reveals real wickedness. What do you want? Come and see and follow me and you will see heaven opened. My soul followeth hard after thee, and thy right hand upholdeth me. Let us sing hymn number 252, and let us turn to Jesus. Listen, if you haven't ever yet come to him, may you see his outstretched arms as we sing this hymn. And may you turn to him today, and may you confess him as your Lord and Savior. You can actually do it right here in the service. May the good Lord come with his salvation and visit every one of us. Let us stand and sing. <laughs>